Campfire Ghost Stories, Episode 4, The Smuggler's Path. To get to the sea from the village, there's a walk down a footpath about a mile long. You're going downhill pretty much all the way, down the valley, surrounded by lots of hedges, fields, you can sometimes see the cattle, there are birds calling the whole time and it's a really pleasant walk and when you get to the far end there's the cove where you're about 80 feet I guess above sea level and you can look down across this sort of cliff-like bay and you can scramble down the cliffs there are steps and things to get you down there onto that beach which is covered in rocks but can still be a nice place to go for a swim on a really hot day in the summertime and that path during the daytime is a really lovely place to go for a walk. But at night time, it takes on a very different atmosphere sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes. And I guess the reason for that goes back a couple of hundred years to when things were very different in the village. There's a pub in the village or just on the outskirts of the village anyway, which is a great place to go for a drink. It's got views all the way down to the sea from its garden. It's a really old-fashioned kind of place. The beer is served direct from barrels behind the counter. And yeah, it has this great old world sort of charm and atmosphere to it. But a couple of hundred years ago, the family that ran the pub were all smugglers. Smuggling was really popular in, in Britain, in coastal areas simply because it was a way of making some extra money. What you did was to take a small boat across to France, say, or somewhere else on the continent. You'd buy items that were of quite high value here in England, so things like lace and brandy or tobacco, and you'd bring them back to England and you'd basically land them and sell them on without paying any sort of an import tax. The excise duty that was supposed to be paid at those times on any goods that were imported. And if you avoided that tax, obviously you could sell your goods on a bit cheaper to uh, all the people in the villages and the towns around you. So it was a good way of making a load of extra money, giving everybody a slightly better deal. And um, well, it was unfortunately a bit of a criminal activity as well. So that's why <laughs> smuggling was definitely something that was very much frowned upon. And uh, this whole family who lived in the pub a couple of hundred years ago were all members of the same smuggling gang. They'd been pretty successful. This was the mum, the dad, and their grown-up kids. They were all involved. And um, the gangs of smugglers that operated in that area at that time were um, fairly competitive with each other. And that would even involve doing things like going and uh, giving evidence against a rival gang, if it was possible. And sometimes the customs men, or the, the excise men as they were called in those days, would, uh, would get a tip off from somebody. It would be someone from a rival gang, most likely, who'd got wind of the latest smuggling operation for one of their biggest rivals. And so they'd go and tell the customs men that there was a shipment being landed in a particular place on a particular date and if they were there at the right time 
they might just catch themselves a whole load of smugglers in the act. And this, we believe, is what happened to the gang of smugglers who were living and working from the pub in the village about 200 years ago. A man came to the customs office in the nearest port town and he informed them that if the customs men went to this cove just down below the village on a particular night, just as the moon was rising, they would find, hopefully, a ship in the bay ready to unload some cargo. And it was cargo that the customs men might just find of interest. Well, the man in charge decided that this tip-off was a good one. And so, late on the afternoon of the day in question, a group of customs men, about 20 of them, set off from their base in the port town and they rode across the countryside. They had to do about eight or nine miles on horseback to get themselves into position before it got completely dark. They took the horses and, and hid them over the side of the hill. They left a couple of men to look after their horses and the rest of the customs men crept up to the edge of the cove. They hid themselves all the way around the tops of the cliffs and they sat and they watched and they waited. And sure enough, as it got darker, they could see in the distance the sails of a small sailing boat, a sloop that was getting gradually closer and closer to the cove. And as it got darker and darker still, so it was that this sloop finally made it into the bay. It dropped its anchor and then a small boat was lowered over the side. And from up on the cliffs, the customs men could see that lots of goods were being loaded into the small boat from the big one. And when the little rowing boat was looking very full, three men clambered on board. One to stand at the bow and look out for any rocks on the way into the cove because it was quite a treacherous little row in, while the other two had an oar each and were there to row the boat into shore. And so, as they watched from up on the cliffs, the customs men saw the little boat being rowed in towards the shore with the man standing in the bow, watching out for any rocks. Now, amongst those customs men up on the cliffs, there was a very young man. We think he was probably only about 16 or 17, and this was his very first job. He was very excited because it was his first stakeout where there were real smugglers out there. But at the same time, it was kind of scary because he knew very well that smugglers would often put up a fight. They'd resist arrest. And he knew as well that these smugglers would no doubt be quite heavily armed. And if they felt that they were in danger of being taken, they would most likely defend themselves with lethal force. And so, as he sat there in his hiding place up on the cliffs, he had his musket pointing out towards the boat. And as he was sitting there, he was getting gradually more and more tense as the boat pulled in 
closer towards the shore. And what he didn't quite realise was that as he was getting that much more tense and nervous and excited, his index finger was curled around the trigger of the musket. And gradually, that finger almost imperceptibly started to tighten horror the musket had gone off in his hand it had been pointing right at the boat and in fact the musket ball had struck the man who was standing up in the bow full in the chest and hurled him back into the boat the two men who were rowing realized there was an ambush they turned the boat around and they rowed back towards the sailing ship as fast as they could meanwhile the officer in charge of the customs men realized that their cover had been blown. The smugglers were going to get away. They weren't going to catch them tonight. He cursed the young man for a fool. And they all went back to their horses, mounted up and galloped away back to the town. The smugglers who were on the sailing ship realized what was happening and they called to the men in the rowing boat to turn around, to go back ashore and to try and get the wounded man back to safety. So they turned around, they rowed as hard as they could towards the shore. Once they beached the boat, they picked up the injured smuggler and they half carried, half dragged him back up the path about a mile or so to the village. Quietly, they carried him through the streets to the pub. And once inside, lights were brought and uh, his injuries were examined. This was the eldest son of the family who lived at the pub. It was clear when they looked closely that there was no way this man was going to survive. His injuries were far too serious. And so he was taken to one of the rooms upstairs, put to bed and made as comfortable as possible while everyone gathered around waiting for the inevitable to happen. And when finally he died, with his last breath, he cursed the man who had shot him and he swore that he would hunt him down and haunt him for the rest of his days. With that, he died. We don't know exactly what happened to the smuggler's body, but we can assume that he was taken out to sea and dropped over the side, burial at sea, a man overboard on a fishing trip would be far easier to explain than trying to bury a body with a musket wound to the chest. But the strange thing is what began happening a few weeks after these events. Because villagers who went up and down that path as it was getting dark and later in the evening sometimes said that as they were on the path they were approached by a shadowy figure. This figure would kind of stagger up to them, stand really close, and although they couldn't make out any of the features, they were conscious of a pair of very intense eyes that seemed not to be looking 
at them, but almost looking through them. They said it felt almost as if whatever this thing was, was looking at everything they'd ever done in their entire lives. And they could feel it almost flashing before them as they stood there staring in horror at this very menacing shadowy figure. And then, after a minute or two of terror, the shadowy figure would kind of turn to one side, shuffle on, and by the time the person who was frightened out of their wits turned to see where the figure had gone, it had already disappeared. Well, what was it? People started to say that perhaps this was the ghost of the smuggler come back to see if he could find the man who had shot him so that he could hunt him down and haunt him for the rest of his days. Maybe it was. But perhaps also it was a good story for the smugglers to be able to tell. The last thing they wanted was for lots of nosy villagers to be wandering up and down that path in the middle of the night when they were trying to move their contraband inland. So perhaps there is a ghost here, or perhaps it's a convenient tale told to keep the path nice and empty at the times when the smugglers really wanted to use it. I guess we'll never know. Thank you for listening.